The COVID pandemic and the reactive government policies have torn apart our social fabric. Many Canadians will never trust authorities or experts, including doctors, ever again. How did we get here and how can we fix it? I'm Kenneth Malcolm and this is The Kenneth Malcolm Show. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning into the podcast. So the health scares associated with COVID have mostly passed, but many Canadians are still trapped in their own form of COVID purgatory. Some may even call it COVID hell. They can't get on an airplane. They can't get on a train. They can't visit their loved ones. They can't go see family. They can't leave the country. They can't even flee if they want to. Many have been excommunicated by their friends and their family. Many have lost their business, lost their livelihoods. Many have lost their jobs, despite having contracts or unions that were designed and supposed to protect them. Countless Canadians feel excluded and alienated. They feel ignored and marginalized and doomed to failure. Worse, some feel targeted, harassed, and singled out by their government and by cynical politicians for the crime of making a health choice that the elites don't approve of. So while some political leaders are interested in the plight of these types of Canadians, including those who came out to support the trucker convoy, the much more popular opinion among politicians and leaders and elites in our country is to use these marginalized Canadians as a scapegoat, as a target, and as a punching bag. Now, whether you call these elites, whether you call them the Laurentian elite, the expert class, the gatekeepers, there is a powerful ruling class in our country that is maddeningly out of touch with the concerns and the anxieties of the typical working Canadian. So how did we get here and how can we work towards rebuilding our civil society? We need to rebuild our civil society at this point. We need to reconnect as Canadians. We need to demand more liberalism and more democracy out of our liberal democracy. So joining me today to have this conversation and to help me work through some of these ideas, I'm very pleased to be welcomed once again by Dr. Matt Strauss. Dr. Strauss was on the program as a previous guest and I wanted to invite him back today to dive a little bit deeper into some of the conversations and some of the topics that we discussed last time. So, Dr. Schaus, thank you so much for joining the program. Pleasure to be here. So, for those of you who don't remember the previous episode we had with Dr. Schaus, he is the Acting Medical Officer of Health for Haldeman Norfolk. He's an ICU doctor. He's a former professor of medicine and a former Global Journalism Fellow with the University of Toronto. He was one of the first public health officials in Canada to call for an end to vaccine mandates. He has been a vocal critic of Canada's pandemic response, written several op-eds calling for an end to unscientific mandates. So, Dr. Strauss, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about, I mean, you worked on the front lines, you were there, you witnessed it with your own eyes, you saw firsthand um, the effects of lockdowns, the sort of unintended consequences of government policies, and in many ways how the prescription, the the supposed cure, uh, was worse than the disease in terms of lockdowns being worse than the pandemic itself. So I was hoping you could uh, walk our audience through a little bit of, of, of what that looked like, um, some of the worst things that you saw as a doctor working in the ICUs, and some of the things that maybe Canadians aren't even really aware of well, what was going on during COVID. Uh, okay, well, so I saw some horrible things. I, I spoke uh, last time I was on your show about uh, in a single week admitting multiple elders from nursing homes who were starving to death because their families were banned from the premises in the name of social distancing, and so there was no one to feed them. Um, and they almost died of starvation in Canada in 20, uh, 2020, 2021. Um, 
uh, some things I, I didn't get to speak about <clears throat> were the obvious worsening of uh, addictions problems. I saw some folks who quite literally drank themselves to death. And um, uh, unlike starvation, uh, that's not necessarily something we can fix when you get in. So I, I did see some younger folks, uh, mid-30s, mid-40s, who died of alcohol. Um, and, you know, in taking the stories from them, it was very clear they lost their job. They'd been shut in for three months. People aren't supposed to live that way. Um, and they turned to drink and uh, never, never recovered. Um, I um, had read uh, about catatonic depression as a medical student. That means a depression so severe that you're in a coma. I don't generally um, look after folks uh, for depression because I'm not a psychiatrist. But if you are in a coma from your depression, you do often come under the care of a medical doctor. Um, and like I said, I'd never seen a case. I saw two in 2020. Um, one man after six months uh, of not leaving his house, who his wife said was a perfectly lovely gentleman, 35 years of marriage. Uh, he tried to strangle her and he collapsed and fell into a coma. Um, I saw a woman who tried to kill her grandchildren after being uh, locked in with them for three months. And when she sort of came to out of whatever that state she was in, uh, she said, that wasn't me. She couldn't, she couldn't believe that she'd done it. Um, we, you know, working in Kingston, I, um, where all the federal prisons are, I, I have looked after serial killers and I, I've learned a little bit about the prison system in Canada. And Paul Bernardo gets um, an hour of sunlight a day. Um, so so uh, if you're a serial killer and you're in our federal prison system and you behave badly, you get put in isolation. Isolation is considered a punishment for the very worst of the worst. Um, and we, we did that to all Canadians. Um, and so the, the ravages thereof were just visible all over the system. Um, I hate to talk about this, but I had a colleague, a, a friend, a wonderful ICU nurse who died by suicide um, last summer and her obituary um, pointed out the, that the effects of lockdowns have been very difficult on her mental health. Um, so I, I saw, and then in terms of the public commentary, it was all, everyone stay home um, for the sake of our healthcare workers. But all of this was very hard on healthcare workers. I would say that every time I went to the hospital, there was a new rule um, about, you know, masking and checking in and you can't, you can no, no longer have potlucks. It, at a hospital I'm familiar with, the nurses received an email from the management um, on Christmas Eve saying the management was going to walk around and make sure nobody was having a potluck on Christmas Eve. And if you were, you'd be fired on the spot. Um, so there were just all sorts of inhumane things. I saw um, a patients of mine who uh, the healthcare team had to fight for them to get to see their loved ones before they died. I had patients who were between life and death in the ICU for three months, um, whose families were not allowed to visit them for the duration. I was at a time when, um, uh, patients from Scarborough were being transferred elsewhere and, and Scarborough was considered a red zone. Um, and so their families were not allowed to come visit. And um, one, of the, uh, one of the worst things I saw was um, a young indigenous man with a disability and a severe medical problem uh, flew down from a reserve um, and his, his mom came as his translator and she was kicked out of the hospital. So she, she'd flown in and when she arrived, she was told, there's no hospital visitors. And she was kicked out at four in the morning in a strange city where she didn't know anyone. Um, and I, I'm sorry to say, I don't know what became of her, but so I guess I would say I saw all sorts of miserable things um, I, that I, I call Russian novel levels of despair. 
Um, and none of these things make it to the CP24 news crawler. Um, they, were, they were breathlessly reporting cases of COVID and deaths from COVID, and, and those things are important. Um, my background, I, I came to medicine with a degree in English literature. My background's in the humanities, and, and I, I, I think that some things can only be expressed humanistically. And maybe some of those folks uh, in those terrible situations will write novels about what they went through. Um, but it, I think it'll be many years before we fully grasp what, what was perpetrated on our population these last two years. And so, I mean, some of it you can sort of chalk up to, okay, there was this novel virus and no one knew where it came from or what it was capable of doing. We looked at what was happening in China and we kind of just mimicked their response, right? We saw mass lockdowns and, and, and people getting arrested for being out in the streets in Wuhan. This is in sort of early 2020 and I was watching it unfold in social media is sort of in disbelief. And then it just seemed like it was a matter of time before we imported that sort of uh, not to be hyperbolic, but sort of an authoritarian approach to you know, controlling everything and everyone to help prevent the spread of disease. Uh, why do you think that that was our reflective uh, approach as a society um, in terms of just sort of like the absolutism of everything's about COVID? I know the news media were drumming it up. You mentioned CP24 with their time picker, but it was like a, it was like a scoreboard, right? Like a score count. And we were only hyper-focused singularly on COVID, all of the kinds of misery that you're describing is inhumane, and it was, it was our own system that was perpetrating it. It wasn't a, a foreign, mysterious virus. It was us doing it to one another, to fellow Canadians. Why was that the approach? What was it about our culture, our healthcare system, our institutions um, that allowed that and, and that led that, and that enabled sort of two years of, of the elites and the people in charge of our society not only justifying it, um, but sort of scolding anybody who, who stepped out of line. I, I Probably textbooks will be written, um, or, or at least PhD theses will be written to answer this question. A few things that I can point at is this is the first pandemic we've gone through with widespread social media uh, use. And I don't think we're, we, were, we were only starting to get a handle on how damaging to our uh, individual psychologies, uh, Twitter and Facebook and Instagram were. Um, so I remember the H1N1 flu pandemic um, in 2008, 2009, and it wasn't as deadly. Not as many people died. I fully acknowledge that. But I remember I was a young healthcare worker. I was 25. And as a 25-year-old, H1N1 was more deadly to me than COVID because COVID is extremely deadly to folks who are elderly and not so dangerous to folks who are younger. When I got H1N1 from my work at the hospital, uh, the only thing the hospital asked me was, when can you be back? There was, there was no talk about isolation and quarantine and, and getting swabbed. I, I, public health never called me. Um, so I think similar to how people often talk about how the, the rate of child abduction is much lower now than it was in the 70s. But fear about child abduction is much higher now because we all have cable news. And anytime any child is abducted anywhere in the English speaking world, it's um, broadcast on CNN uh, just about 24 hours a day. Um, I think the fact that we were all having a device ringing in our pocket, letting us know when there was COVID in our in our country, in our province, and in our town, how many were in the hospital. I, I don't think um, I don't think we were ready for that amount of stimulation. The other thing I will say is, um, it it's become clear to me that communist China is just as bad as any authoritarian regime that has ever existed. Um, they have 1.5 million Uyghurs in concentration camp. They have uh, mass censorship. They, you know, they shot protesters uh, at Tiananmen Square. 
And yet our elite class uh, has been cozying up to China all along. So it's a bit, well, it's not exactly a coincidence that um, COVID started in China, uh, but because it did, we had the opportunity to pattern our response off of the Chinese response, which was deadly because that is a very evil regime and we shouldn't be patterning anything off of what China does. And yet the World Health Organization receives a lot of money from China. And while this was going on, Taiwan had a much more liberal democratic approach to COVID-19 that was actually much more successful than China's. Um, so they, they barely closed schools. They, they just did not, they, they didn't, certainly didn't weld people into their homes. Um, and it was very upsetting to me that instead of co-opting the Taiwanese response, uh, the World Health Organization sort of uh, COVID czar, uh, Bruce Alward, he gave this famous interview where he refused to even acknowledge the existence of Taiwan. And because the question was asked, he uh, pretended that his laptop wasn't working and uh, ended the interview. So I, I think there, there, there was a problem with us misunderstanding the threat that China portends. The thing I will say is we'd all been a little bit deranged by American politics and Donald Trump, and I never was a Trump supporter. Um, but when he started um, saying things about hydroxychloroquine and the like, everyone really panicked. Um, and, and, then, and then after that point, anything that Trump said was the worst and all of Canada had to, had to be against it. So I, those are three things I can point to. I think there's many, many others. Well, I, th I think you're right about a little bit of the Trump derangement sort of spilling onto it because it seemed to me at the time that the news media in the United States really had an interest in drumming up just how bad everything was to try to humiliate Trump, to try to, you know, derail him and make sure that, that he wasn't reelected. And and because of that, we sort of just, uh, it's, it all snowballed a little bit. I, I want to pick up on something you, you mentioned about Taiwan not locking down schools. And you, you mentioned how H1N1 uh, was, was more deadly for, for, for younger people. Uh, you know, it, it seemed like we knew, I mean, True North had a report that came out over a year ago in April 2021 about how more Canadians died under the age of 65 from depression, suicide, drug overdose, alcoholism um, than COVID. Uh, we we, we kind of knew who were the vulnerable ones and who was sort of generally more more safe. And so rather than taking a targeted approach, we, we, we just sort of continued to lock down, lock down, lock down, right up until even 2022, we had lockdowns. Uh, it, it seemed like that the, the people in charge in this country were just, not learning from the mistakes that we had made. I mean, uh, did, did, did you observe that? And why is it that our political leaders and, and public health leaders uh, to this day continue to sort of uh, drum the idea that, that, that the solution to COVID is by locking down our site, our site including little kids and, and, and people who don't uh, really pose a big uh, risk of, of getting very ill from COVID? It's hard to read other folks' minds. I do think there's a bit of a generational issue. Um, I, I only recently became aware, you, you wrote a book on, on Generation Screwed. And I, I do think that baby boomers are at great risk of death from COVID, or they were until they were vaccinated. Um, so, And it happens to be the case that baby boomers run our society. They're in the positions of power. They own all the wealth. Um, so I, they were, frankly, they were right to be scared. Um, I don't think they were right to scapegoat the younger generations who were trying to make a living um, or just trying to uh, enjoy their lives. Um, and I, I think it's something dark and unfortunately natural about human psychology that if you have a mortal threat, it's much nicer to scapegoat um, 20 year olds having a picnic at Trinity Bellwoods Park 
um, than it is to consider the ways that, <clears throat> I mean, so another thing to mention, but besides the age issue, um, perfectly healthy elders are, were at much less risk of death from COVID um, than uh, folks with multiple medical problems. And so in my own experience, working as an ICU doctor for um, the first year and a half of the pandemic before I, I went to a less clinical role in public health, um, the youngest person who was perfectly healthy that I met who was critically ill from COVID-19 was 76. Uh, but, um, everyone else had multiple medical problems. And, and I, I'm sorry to say, I think there is a role for personal responsibility. And, and I, but I can understand how rather than looking at, you know, could I get in shape? Could I stop smoking? These sorts of things. It's much nicer to blame the 21 year olds for having a nice time at the park. It's certainly for me, one of the breaking points, uh, just personally, because uh, my family and I, we just bought a new house in Toronto. We were right across the street from a park and, you know, they would t put the tape up on the playground um, every day. You know, if, if anyone cut it down, they would come back and they would wrap it up. And it was so demoralizing <laughs> for my little son to want to go to the park and sorry sweetie we can't go on the swings today because the government said no and then one day I was sitting in a park with my son in Toronto and these trucks literally drove onto the uh, park this is Trolley Park in Toronto and picked up the um the, the, the uh, picnic tables and the park benches and took them away because they just didn't want anyone congregating in the park. And, you know, this was in like April or May. It was still pretty cold out. It wasn't like it was like, you know, warm spring. It was still kind of chilly. And the fact that they were kind of just punitively saying like, no, you cannot come in this park and this picnic table is somehow going to, uh, you know, c cause people to get COVID or something. It was just so mean spirited and, and so like sort of the epitome of the mindset of these sort of just mindless bureaucrats who are carrying out these ridiculous orders that somehow par having benches in parks is going to contribute um, to COVID. I, I, I want to continue on the, the topic of little kids though, because I know, you know, there's an Ontario election going on. No one's paying any attention to it. It's not very interesting, probably by design, but the, the one, one comment that sort of stood out was the Ontario Liberals and their leader, Stephen Del Duca, said that he wanted to make COVID vaccines mandatory for little kids to attend public school, that it would be part of the regular uh, vaccine regime for little kids. And, you know, to me, that, that that's like the perfect thing to drive people away from public schools, because it's like, you know, no matter what you say about COVID vaccines and COVID and, you know, all for vaccines and all that kind of stuff, it's like, you know, the idea of, of giving a little kid a vaccine when they don't really, there's no risk, there's not a real risk of that child getting sick or dying from COVID. Um, it, it, it just seems really unnecessarily divisive. I want to know your opinion on that. Yeah, well, I, the first thing I would say is COVID-19 is not a risk to the vast, vast majority of children. Um, that influenza since the beginning of the pandemic has been a greater risk. So if you get influenza as a child, it is riskier to you than COVID-19. Um, that said, there are children who are medically fragile who have uh, very significant medical problems and um, COVID can be a, a significant problem for them. Uh, what we know at this point is that two doses of vaccine does not prevent you from passing um, COVID on to someone else, such as a medically fragile child. So I, I absolutely think that if I was a parent of a child with medical problems, I would be in a, in a terrific rush to get them vaccinated. Um, the, I think throughout all our thinking about the pandemic, the idea of 
risk benefit analysis has been sorely lacking. So yeah, there may be some benefit to getting more children vaccinated for COVID. Um, but what is the risk? It's something like only half of the children in this country and in this province are vaccinated. So kicking half of the children out of public school, is that, how, how do you weigh that against the sort of one in 500,000 chance that um, any child dies of, of COVID-19? Um, I, I think obviously that's a, in addition to being a mean-spirited policy, it's also likely to significantly backfire. And if you have um, a generation of children who are even more unschooled than they are after two years of school closures, two years of school closures on and off, um, I, I think the, the social problems and the, and the personal health problems that those children might experience far, far, far outweigh the benefit that they might get from a COVID vaccine. Well, I can't imagine a, a better way to galvanize people against public schools, because like you said, if, if half the kids aren't vaccinated, um, you know, th this is more likely just going to drive people away from public schools and maybe they'll go find, a, you know, a, a, a better set of uh, educational tools for the kids or maybe they'll go to independent schools or to your point, maybe they'll fall through the cracks and and be part of the growing number of people who just don't go to school, which is is, is really sad and scary. And and again, these, these kind of issues are just never really mentioned. I, I, I want to shift because this, this sort of reminds me, I, I don't know if you, if you deleted it, but there was a, a piece in the Toronto Star that just attacked you. Um, and it was written by their sports writer, Bruce Arthur. I don't, I, I don't know why he, he chose you to, to kind of go after, but he, he really, you really bother him and, and he, he let you hear it. And uh, you're, not, you're not alone. You're in good company. Uh, myself and many, many others uh, have been um, the target of Bruce Arthur's, uh, you know, snarly uh, opinions. But one of the things uh, that you, he, he was really upset that you said was that you would sooner give your child COVID than McDonald's Happy Meal. And uh, I thought this was kind of amusing because I, I think that people need to take greater responsibility for their own health. I think that one of the things we didn't really talk about at all during COVID uh, was this idea that, you know, the, a lot of people who were sick and, and had severe um, cases of COVID had underlying health issues. They were obese or they weren't taking care of themselves in, in, in a healthy way. And that was never a discussion. It was never a topic that, that there's some individual responsibility in making sure that you're healthy, you're eating right, you're exercising, all this kind of stuff. And so I, th I thought it was amusing that you, that you made that point, but he, he uh, mentioned that you deleted that tweet. So maybe you, uh, you had a change of heart on that, but um, I, I, I just want to know what, what your reaction is to Bruce, Bruce Arthur writing about you in the Toronto Star trying to take you down, saying that you're not qualified uh, to be the medical officer and um, kind of picking apart some of your um, things that you've written on Twitter. Well, let me address the tweet first. That tweet was part of a long thread in which I looked at the data regarding uh, childhood obesity, which is epidemic and on the rise. Um, uh, and I, I know that these critics of mine were acting in bad faith because they always took the conclusion of that thread rather than the data and the scientific papers that were linked in that thread um, to show that if you're obese on your 18th birthday, you are twice as likely not to make it to age 30 as somebody who's a healthy weight on their 18th birthday. Um, that's, that's, that's crushingly bad. And I feel awful for those kids. By the way, if you're an obese child, you, you didn't do that to yourself. That was neglect. Um, and, and not merely parental neglect, but our whole society is built um, in ways for children not to be healthy. Um, my wife is Dutch, I will be Dutch soon. Um, after three years of marriage, I get a passport and their whole society is built around active living. And we, we could do that here, we just have chosen not to. Um, so it is, it's, it's just a fact that McDonald's is more of a health risk for children than COVID-19. COVID-19 is a one in a million chance of killing a healthy child, less than that. 
Um, and it, it's also a fact that probably one day I will give my daughter COVID-19 um, because it's everywhere. I, I may have had it. I, I, I don't know. I, um, we, we may have already exposed her to it. I don't know. But um, also it, it happens to be the case that my wife is vegetarian and I can't imagine a, a situation where we'd be taking a, a toddler for a hamburger. Um, so yeah, a, a very bad faith criticism. Now, it seemed to me that um, many folks were taking that line of thinking as a personal attack on their parenting skills, which was not my point. Uh, and as a writer, you know, if people are taking things the wrong way, then I, 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 I failed in my purpose. So I, I took down that tweet. It was obviously causing more um, uh, emotion than uh, action. Uh, regarding that piece uh, from Bruce, I think, and actually, I, there's a bigger social issue where people confuse credentials with qualifications. What qualifies me to do my job is that I'm quite good at it. And the COVID-19 mortality um, in Haldeman Norfolk since I uh, came to the position has gone down relative to other jurisdictions. So I've, I've been successful uh, and that's what qualifies me. Um, how I came by my qualifications were uh, my my work on the philosophy of science. I'm currently enrolled in, in graduate school. Uh, my 10 years is a critical uh, care doctor, um, the, my experience teaching uh, dozens, if not hundreds of medical residents and uh, students. Uh, so I don't have the credential that uh, Bruce seems to think is, is most necessary, but credentials are not qualifications. And, and then obviously there's, there's just the great irony of the Toronto Star dispatching its sports writer to assess my qualifications. Like I don't think he's qualified to, um, to look at my qualifications. And then the last thing I'll say is I spent a year and a half working as a frontline doctor in this pandemic. I, I know what COVID-19 is. I've seen what it does to people. And I, I frankly have taken care of more um, desperately ill people with COVID-19 than Bruce ever will. So I, um, I didn't really pay. I didn't really take his criticisms too seriously. Let's leave it at that. Yeah, fair enough. I, I wouldn't either. And I don't think that he deserves uh, more. But I, I will just say that I, I, I had to agree. I don't, I don't, don't judge other people's parenting styles or whatever. But my kids have never had a McDonald's Happy Meal. Uh, they have had COVID. They were fine. Um, but I think that when I, when, I, when I say personal responsibility, I'm obviously not meaning that little kids need to have personal responsibility, but obviously their parents uh, need, need, need to focus on making sure that kids are eating healthy and getting outside. And that's, that's important for everyone. And um, yeah, I'd be interested to learn more about the Dutch uh, philosophy because one of the things that just seemed totally absent to me was this idea that, you know, th th things like getting outside, getting fresh air, you know, this is part of going back to my frustration with them taking away the park benches at Chorley Park and trying to block off the trails. It's like, let people get outside, get fresh air. Um, n not only is it better for their health, but you know, we're talking about people suffering from depression and alcoholism. Um, let them have social connections. Let them, you know, for, for me, I, I loved going to the park because sometimes I bump into friends or other parents or, you know, just getting fresh air. And the, the fact that they were trying to deter that and, and, you know, finding people and taking away the park benches, it, it just showed complete reversal. I remember at one point the health, uh, pub, uh, the health, health minister, Patty Haiju, um, told people not to take vitamin D supplements, uh, which to me was just so absurd. I think, I mean, you're a doctor, I'm not, but I think given the climate and the, you know, the, the lack of sun in the winter, I, you know, me and my family, we always take vitamin D. That's, and, and, and for me, I mean, I was pregnant for most of um, the initial COVID lockdowns. I had a daughter in November, 2021. And the first thing that your doctor recommends when you're pregnant is to start taking vitamin D when the baby's born, put them on vitamin D supplements. So, you know, this idea that the top health officer of the country was telling us not to take uh, vitamin D just seemed really 
strange. Um, I, I did want to ask you about um, one, one of the recent uh, positions that you've taken that's also been controversial, Dr. Strauss, and that is that in April, you vouched for a new antiviral drug made by Pfizer called uh, Paxlovid. Um, and, you know, you, you, you said that you were excited about this. So I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about this drug and whether you think it will help us uh, finally end this pandemic and, and, uh, and how it would do that. Yeah, so the, um, the randomized control trial published in the New England Journal of Medicine looked at the benefits of Paxlovid for folks who are unvaccinated and have some other risk factor for having a bad time with COVID-19. Um, and it found that, it, I, I, uh, hopefully I have the numbers right off the top of my head, the rate of hospitalizations um, for these individuals, if you gave them Paxlovid versus a sugar pill, went down from 6% to 1%. So um, if you give it to 20 people, you save one hospitalization. Uh, the study was not intending to look at deaths. Um, they didn't think they would have enough, uh, a large enough sample size because death is still, even in this unvaccinated and, and um, uh, higher risk population uh, is still uncommon. But they, what they ended up seeing was I think 12 deaths in the, in the uh, I think it was 600 people who got the sugar pill and zero deaths in the 600 people who got the Paxlovid. So we don't see medicines that are 100% effective at preventing death very often in clinical methods, uh, medicine, certainly not for infectious diseases, certainly not um, uh, for an infectious disease that's only existed for two years. So this is a, a stupendous result. And um, I, I was very excited about it because it, it, it I mean, my, my, my life's work is saving lives. That's what I've spent the last 10 years of medical practice trying to do. Um, and so I was very excited to make sure that as many people who qualify for this medicine get it. And I was concerned that there was a bit of gatekeeping going on. You, you use that word. So I, I will too. Um, we're, uh, initially the government wanted, uh, for this medicine to only be delivered to COVID assessment centers, then for uh, you know an infectious disease specialist to um, to assess you and decide whether it was necessary, and it just seemed like we were reinventing the wheel. We already have a way of of getting medicines out to people. It's called family doctors' offices and pharmacies. Um, so rather than trying to run all of this through hospitals and COVID assessment centers, I, I just felt very passionate, like send us a box of this medicine. I've talked to the family doctors in our town. They understand well, every physician in Canada, if they're not totally incompetent, is constantly having to learn about new drugs and new treatments and how to apply them. And that, that's part of all of our, um, our professional competency upkeep. So um, I'm, I was really glad that ultimately the, the provincial government decided the right thing and, and, and sent it out um, to each community and, and doctors are prescribing it uh, all over the place. Interesting. Yeah, it seems like uh, there there was a lot of sort of controversy around alternative treatments and you know the idea of uh, natural immunity versus um, taking taking drugs. It seems like that kind of conversation has passed. Uh, just, just to f sort of wrap up the interview and and um, ask you, I mean, wh what do you think it'll take in Canada to move past this? Uh, you know, we've we've talked about a lot of the just major problems that have presented itself or or failed approach. The sort of uh, maliciousness that we've been treating uh, one another and the divisiveness. Uh, you know, there's so many Canadians that still feel like they're in the midst of it because they can't travel or they, they don't have their job, they don't have their livelihood. Uh, obviously, it's a huge, huge question and we have our work cut out for us as a society. It might take us a decade to get past this, but what are, what, what are some things that you think 
uh, our leaders need to do and and how can we start uh, to mend our, our uh, very frayed uh, social fabrics in this society in this country the mandates have to go away they're completely unscientific um, they're obviously cheap politicking um, and I I don't I'm not a I'm not a politician I'm not a political scientist I don't know how to make this happen but it it needs to happen. Uh, frankly, there's, there should be a lot of apologies. Um, that's a good way to, to mend fences. Um, and I think the, I, we talked about it last time, but just the basic issue of civility. How do we disagree with someone? If I think something about the vaccine and you think something different, how do we talk about that? Um, I, so even at, at, at the university that I worked at, the, um, the chief of medicine said, if you, if you believe in a focused protection plan and you sign the Great Barrington Declaration, you're a you're a Trump supporter who wants people to get sick. And that's that's so if even at the academy. Another thing he, he told us was if you have concerns about the vaccine, keep them to yourself, which is a, a, a hell of a thing to tell um, 100 physician scientists. So um, I, I think maybe it's civics education, maybe it's liberal arts education, like getting back to enlightenment ideals of free inquiry and, and respecting other humans. And, you know, you go your way, I'll go mine. Um, so I, there's maybe some philosophical work that has to be done. I, I think there's, there's problems with the whole cancel culture thing and, and the idea that if a, if a professor disagrees with you on a point of science, you have to have a petition to get him defenestrated, um, such as was attempted with Byron Brindle. Uh, and, and and was attempted with me. Um, it's not. It's frankly not a coincidence that I don't work at the university anymore. Um, although that particular attempt wasn't successful. Um, so uh, yeah, I think there's a lot of rebuilding to do, just in terms of what is a civic society, what are enlightenment values, and and how do we hew to them um, the next time our system gets a shock like this. Well, uh, again, I'll just repeat that we definitely have our work cut out for us, but I, I will definitely echo a, a, a lot of the things you say. I think, you, you know, we, we can all make attempts to to build bridges with those we disagree with. And if, for me personally, I used to love Twitter. I used to have so much fun going on there and just kind of ripping at stupid things that liberals would say. And I, I've stopped. I like I'll stop myself even when I see a dumb tweet from a journalist that I just really want to, you know, p p pick apart. But it's like, you know, this is kind of mean spirited and it's not really a productive conversation here is just kind of dunking on someone because, you know, they, they said something stupid and there's a more productive way to, to go, go about this, this disagreement. And that's why, uh, you know, I, I like longer form conversations. So I, I really appreciate you coming back on the show. Uh, Dr. Shows it's always uh, very uh, clarifying to hear from you. We, we appreciate your time. Thank you for having me. Right. That is Dr. Matt Strauss. I'm Candace Malcolm, and this is the Candace Malcolm show. Thank you.